You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today we are going to cover a not very well-known story, and that is the establishment of the Pacific trade route between Mexico and the Philippines, which flourished for 250 years and left a lasting mark on those two nations. This route was first discovered and mapped by a Spanish explorer named André de Urdaneta, and our focus will mostly be around him. This topic will be a single episode. So before we start, let us do some housekeeping. First, I want to remind everyone that if you are looking for cool Explorer merchandise for you or your Explorer nerd friend, you can check out our online store. There are a couple of simple, elegant designs that you can put on mugs and shirts and hoodies and so forth. Find that at explorerspodcast.com. Second, if you are interested in supporting the show financially, please check out the website. You can make a direct donation via PayPal, or we have our Patreon program, which gives you extra benefits such as ad-free episodes in exchange for your support. So if you are interested in helping out, please go to explorerspodcast.com for more information. I want to thank all of our patrons, including our upper-tier supporters, Dave, Susan, Adam, Chris, Eileen, John Paul, Mitchell, Philip, and Roger. Thank you for your continuing support. It is greatly appreciated. And with that done, let's get started with Andre de Urdaneta and the Manila Galleons. In late 1521, Ferdinand Magellan would lead his ships through the strait that now bears his name. The way to Asia and its riches, such as spices and silk, were now open. Now, getting across the Pacific Ocean was far more difficult than anyone ever imagined. Magellan had taken more than three months to reach Guam, his men suffering and dying, mostly from scurvy, along the way. Magellan would perish in the Philippines, which he claimed for Spain, and Juan Sebastian Elcano would lead a single ship, Victoria, along with 17 men, back to Spain, completing the first circumnavigation of the globe. Now, a lot of people forget that another of Magellan's ships had tried to sail back across the Pacific to the Americas. This ship would be beset by storms and unfavorable winds and currents and have to return to the Spice Islands, a.k.a. the Malukas. With their ship barely seaworthy and scurvy and malnutrition running rampant, the survivors would surrender to the Portuguese. A few of these men would eventually return to Europe, but most would spend the rest of their lives as slave laborers. Now, from the moment Juan Sebastian Elcano returned to Europe, The Spanish crown went about trying to figure out how to exploit this new opportunity that had been given to them. We have to remember that Portugal had a monopoly on the maritime trade route to the Far East, that is, going down the African coast, rounding the tip of Africa, and sailing east to India and the Spice Islands. 
Thus, this new route across the Pacific to the rich lands of the Far East intrigued the Spanish crown. Muses had to sail across the Pacific Ocean and back, and all those riches were there for the taking. Of course, that is far easier said than done. The Spanish crown would organize a follow-up expedition that would depart in July of 1525. The expedition's commander would be Garcia Joffre de Loeza, and his second-in-command was Juan Sebastian Elcano, the very man who had led the Victoria around the world back in 1522. The expedition consisted of seven ships and approximately 450 men. Amongst the fleet's crew would be a 17-year-old page by the name of André de Urdaneta. Urdaneta was born in 1508 in Ordizia, a Basque town that was then known as Villafranca, in Castile. His father, Juan Ochea de Urdaneta, was the town's mayor, and his mother, Gracia de Serrayan, was from a prominent local family. Urdaneta was of Basque heritage. The Basque people were often sailors and fishermen at this time, and through his family connections, it's likely that Urdaneta would land the position of Page del Cano, who was also of Basque heritage. The fleet would first sail to the Canary Islands and then down the coast of Africa, before heading west towards Brazil and on to the Strait of Magellan. And then, as the fleet tried to enter the strait, they would be hammered by storms, and two of the ships would be wrecked. This would cause another of the ships to desert. The remaining four vessels would continue into the strait, young Urdaneta learning how to be a pilot during this time, his navigation, charting, and observational skills all being honed. The expedition would pass into the Pacific Ocean in late May, but within days they would again be pummeled by a large storm. The four ships would be separated and never find each other. One ship, Santiago, sailed north and reached Mexico, marking the first navigation of a vessel from Europe to the western coast of North America. Another ship, San Lesmes, disappeared. There is some speculation that this ship actually sailed west and reached what is now Polynesia. This is because a cross erected on a beach was found on the island of Ana in 1774, and later a Spanish cannon was found on a nearby atoll. A third ship, Santa Maria del Paral, sailed across the Pacific and reached the island of San Gir in Indonesia. The ship would have to be beached, and most of the crew were killed or enslaved by the natives. Four of them would be rescued in 1522. That would leave the galleon Santa Maria de la Victoria, which sailed west across the Pacific. The voyage was long and brutal, with scurvy taking hold of the crew. If you listen to the Ferdinand Magellan series, you'll remember that they had with them on their voyage a store of quince jelly, which was reserved for the officers. The quince is a fruit, and it is high in vitamin C. This helped the officers stave off scurvy. Well, there was no quince jelly this time, and scurvy took hold of officers and crewmen alike. On July 20, 1526, in the middle of the Pacific, the expedition's commander, De Loeza, would die. A couple of weeks later, Elcano would succumb to the same disease. Elcano had come to like his page, Urdaneta, and would will him a share of his benefits of the expedition. The Santa Maria de la Victoria would push on and reach Guam in September, and then head to the Moluccas. Only 105 of the expedition's 450 men had managed to cross the Pacific. Now, reaching the Spice Islands was not going to end the expedition, not by a long shot. In the eyes of the Portuguese, the Spanish were jumping their claim, and that meant war. The Spanish, now commanded by Ainiquez Carcazanio, would reach out to the local natives to try to set up alliances. Urdaneta would have an important hand in these diplomatic efforts, as he showed a natural aptitude for learning other languages, a skill that would prove valuable throughout his lifetime. As a result of these overtures, the Spanish would establish alliances with the natives of two of the region's islands, Halmahera and Tidor, and set up bases on both. As a note, there are hundreds of islands in the Moluccas, but when we say the Spice Islands, we are referring to five specific ones. 
Ternate, Tidor, Moti, Machian, and Bakken. These were volcanic islands with rich, unique soil that produced spices such as cloves, which could grow nowhere else in the world. Thus, these spices were worth a lot of cash in Europe. The island of Halmahera, formerly known as Jalilo, was near those five spice islands, but was not a major producer of spices. The result would be the Spanish and their allies versus the Portuguese and their allies. Urdaneta, despite being only 18, would emerge as one of the leaders of the Spanish contingent. Now, the following January, the Spanish would be delivered a major blow when the Portuguese would sink the Santa Maria de la Victoria, meaning they now had no way out of the area. But the Spanish were confident that reinforcements would arrive, so they dug in. A boat was constructed on Halmahera, and Urdaneta was given command of it, and he went about exploring the area. The fighting with the Portuguese would continue, and at one point Urdaneta, along with his native allies, attacked the Portuguese. The Spanish had a cannon on one of their canoes, and when they tried to ignite it, it would misfire and explode. Fifteen natives would be killed, and Urdaneta would catch on fire. He would have to jump into the water to save himself. Urdaneta would spend the next 20 days recovering from his wounds, and he would be disfigured for life. The truth is that neither side had the manpower to overcome the other. They basically were waiting for someone or something to alter the balance of power. Now, this did not mean that either side was giving up. It was still a deadly game. At one point, the Portuguese captured two boats of natives allied with the Spanish, killing everyone. Spain's native allies responded a week later by seizing some Ternate boats and executing 40 men. And then, in July of 1527, the Spanish commander, Carcazanio, would be poisoned and die. This elevated the Spanish leadership role to Hernando de la Torre. Urdaneta was selected as the expedition's treasure, an indication of the esteem he had amongst the men. This tit-for-tat continued. The Spanish tried building a ship, but the Portuguese set it on fire in a raid. After that, Urdaneta led an attack on the town of Tagu'abi, on the island of Ternate. The daring attack would catch the Portuguese off guard, and the Spanish would seize the town. And then on March 27, 1528, a ship would arrive off Tagu'abi. And not just any ship, but a Spanish ship. Now, to explain this, we need to jump back in time a bit. In October of the previous year, 1527, Hernán Cortés, now the governor of New Spain, had sent three ships to the Moluccas to aid the Loeza expedition and reinforce Spain's possible claim to the prize Spice Islands. However, the fleet would be scattered by a storm and two of the ships would never be heard from again. The third ship, the Florida, had taken five months to cross the Pacific and only 40 men, mostly ill, had survived. The Florida was not big enough to take all the Spaniards. There were now about 90 men left from the original Loeza expedition, and certainly not big enough to carry food and supplies for 130 men on a long ocean voyage. Thus, Hernando de la Torre ordered the Florida to go back to Mexico with a letter pleading for more assistance with their campaign against the Portuguese. The Florida would try, twice, to push east, but to no avail. The truth is that the Spanish simply didn't understand the winds and currents and weather patterns of the Pacific Ocean. And it's important to understand, it's not just storms that threaten any ship going across the ocean. Time is also a factor. If you take too long, you run out of food, and scurvy and starvation set in. Thus, the attempts to head east, back to New Spain, were fruitless. By the end of 1529, the Spanish position in the region was becoming untenable. They were tired, suffering from illness, disease, and malnutrition, their numbers dwindling. Hope was rapidly running out. Thus, roughly a third of the men on Tidor would surrender. With this, most of the rest of the men at the settlement would throw in the towel as well. The Portuguese would order the Spanish to abandon their fortifications and isolate everyone on a small nearby island. Urdaneta, however, refused to give up. 
he and his handful of men got on board the Florida and proceeded to sail around the Moluccas. And then, in May of 1530, Urdaneta learned about a native plot to attack both the Spanish and Portuguese. He would get word to Torre, his former commander, who passed the information on to the Portuguese governor. Due to this sign of goodwill, the Spanish and Portuguese would strike a pact, essentially ending all hostilities. The peace between the two sides was followed by some major news when, on November 3, 1530, a Portuguese fleet would arrive from Europe. They brought with them the details of a treaty between Spain and Portugal, a treaty that saw Spain renounce their claim to the Moluccas. This news was heartbreaking for the survivors, including Erdineta. The story was that Spain, struggling due to a conflict with France, needed money, badly, and thus they struck a deal with Portugal in what would be called the Treaty of Zaragoza in April 1529. The treaty would define the areas of influence in Asia for Portugal and Spain, and in doing this, the Spanish would get 350,000 ducats from the Portuguese in exchange for renouncing their claim on the Moluccas. For Urdaneta and the Spanish, it meant all those years of fighting was for naught. Now, all of this would take time to verify, but when all was said and done, the surviving Spanish sailors would return to Europe. However, it would take years. Urdaneta would not leave the Far East until early 1535. Along the way, he would visit Banda, Java, and Malacca. He would finally reach Lisbon in Portugal in June of 1536, 11 years after having departed from Spain. He had circumnavigated the globe in doing so, although it had taken him over a decade to accomplish the task. Now, Erdinetta's return to Europe would mean he was in for some drama. First, all of his charts and maps and journals were confiscated by the Portuguese, who didn't want any of the information to reach Spanish authorities. And second, Erdinetta was then warned that there was no way the Portuguese were going to let him return to Spain, so he couldn't share his knowledge with his bosses. Some accounts say that Erdinetta was actually imprisoned and escaped. Others say he simply fled before he was arrested. No matter, Erdinetta would hop on a horse and make his way back to Spain. He would provide a report to the Spanish court on February 26, 1537. The report was reconstructed from his own memory. In the report, Erdineta extolled the wealth of the Spice Islands and the opportunities offered by the Far East. He also stressed that using the Southern Passage, aka the Strait of Magellan, was not feasible. The weather was too volatile, even in the best of times, and the distances made scurvy and malnutrition major issues. He recommended ships sail from the Pacific side of the New World. This would mean the construction of shipyards on the western coast of New Spain. The Spanish thanked Erdineta and gave him a reward for his service, 60 ducats. It was a pittance, literally an insult to a man who had just given more than a decade of his life in service of his homeland. So we will leave Erdineta for the time being and take a look at other attempts to explore the Far East by Spain. In 1537, Hernan Cortes sent two ships to Peru to aid Francisco Pizarro in his battle against the Inca Empire. Those ships would turn out not to be necessary, so they would instead travel north, up the North American coast. The ships would get separated in a storm, and one of them, the Santiago, captained by Hernando de Grijalva, would decide to head west for the Malucas. I have read that the crew made this decision and mutinied when Grijalva refused to acquiesce to their demands. They would kill him and sail across the Pacific, the ship eventually reaching the Moluccas. However, by that time, only 12 men were still alive, as starvation and scurvy had decimated the crew's ranks. The survivors would promptly be arrested by the Portuguese. The next attempt to explore the Far East from the New World would be in 1540. This was instigated by Pedro de Alvarado, who you may recall had been one of Hernan Cortez's trusted captains back in the conquest of the Aztec Empire. Anyhow, Alvarado was now the governor of Guatemala, and he was keenly interested in exploring the Pacific and the Far East. 
Alvarado would build a fleet of three ships on the Pacific coast, the intent to cross the Pacific. Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo was named captain, and to serve as the expedition's pilot, Alvarado would recruit a man with more knowledge about the Malucas and the crossing of the Pacific than just about anyone alive, Andre de Urdaneta. It was a brilliant move, as Urdaneta had indispensable knowledge about crossing the ocean and the Far East. However, there was one problem. A native rebellion by the Cascan people in the northwest threatened Spanish control of the region, and thus in 1541, Alvarado and Urdaneta would sail north to aid in putting down the revolt. Once landed, Urdaneta would be put in charge of 150 infantrymen. This was the Mixton War, and the ultimate result would be the defeat of the indigenous armies by the Spanish. However, Alvarado would be killed in the fighting, and this would mean the end of the expedition to the Far East. So with no explorations on his dance card, Urdaneta would go on to serve in a variety of positions for the Viceroy of New Spain. And this will take us up to the 1542 expedition of Rue Lopez Villalobos. This was a six-ship, 400-man venture with orders to go to the Philippines. The result of the expedition was predictable. The fleet suffered from scurvy and malnutrition, but would make it across the Pacific. There, they struggled to survive. In the Philippines, they tried to plant corn, but the effort was a failure. The natives were hostile at almost every turn. Running out of option, Villalobos headed to Tidor in the Malucas. Also, he sent one of his ships, San Juan, in search of food and with orders to try to find the easterly winds that would take the ships back to Mexico. As for the rest of the fleet, their arrival in the Malucas would not please the Portuguese, who freaked out at the arrival of a bunch of Spanish ships. At this point, Villalobos played dumb, saying that they had not violated any treaties. They were there just to go to the Philippines and had come to the Malucas out of desperation, which was all pretty much true. Now, technically, the Spanish did not have a claim to the Philippines, but this was not clear-cut in the eyes of many, and the Portuguese essentially let this slide. If the Spanish wanted to waste their time sailing around the Philippines, let them. There were no spices there, no gold mines, no advanced cities. The San Juan would eventually return, having failed to locate the elusive Easterlies. A second attempt would also fail, although San Juan did reach New Guinea on its travels. The Spanish would flounder around the region for a time, but by 1544, they would be forced to return to Tidor as their ships were either wrecked or falling apart and their settlements unable to sustain themselves due to hostile natives and a lack of food. The Spanish, who numbered 117 by this time, would be imprisoned. Many, including the Lobos, would die due to disease, but others would eventually make their way back to Europe. Again, the expedition had exposed a crucial flaw in the Spanish attempts to colonize the Philippines. They did not know how to get from Asia to the New World. Getting to Asia was hard, but it was doable. They had those routes. But getting back, that had proven impossible. No one had done it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusion supply. So interest would remain in exploring and settling the Philippines. And in the New World, Andres de Urdaneta would go on with his life. 
1547, he was appointed the commander of a fleet to sail to Peru to put down a rebellion by Gonzalo Pizarro. But before he departed, Pizarro was defeated in a battle, and the expedition was disbanded. And then in 1552, the 44-year-old Urdaneta would do something quite dramatic. He joined the priesthood. Specifically, he joined the Augustinians, a Catholic religious order that observed a strict vow of poverty and focused on education and missionary work. Urdaneta would spend a year as a novice and be ordained as a priest in 1557. In 1558, he was appointed Master of Novices at the Priory of San Augustine in Mexico City. Now, as a priest, you would think that Urdaneta's life as an explorer would be done. But far from it, even though he was a priest, he was still an expert resource, and Spanish officials would visit him regularly and quiz him about the Far East. In 1558, the Viceroy of New Spain wrote to King Philip II, urging a new expedition to the Far East, and he suggested the man to lead it was Urdaneta. He was a sailor and a pilot and a navigator. He knew the region. He knew several of the native languages. He had experience as a soldier and as a leader. He was perfect, except for that pesky detail about him being a priest. But that was an obstacle that could be dealt with. And thus, in September of 1559, Philip would greenlight a new expedition and send a personal request to Urdaneta for his involvement, saying, quote, I therefore command and entrust you to go in the said ships and to do as the viceroy may require of you further in the service of our lord, end quote. Urdaneta was reluctant to get mixed up in yet another expedition, but his superiors, who wanted very much to stay in the good graces of the crown, ordered him to accede. So on September 24, 1559, he would write to the king and accept. Now, there were a few things to be ironed out. First, Urdaneta was not interested in commanding the expedition. Instead, he accepted as an advisor, navigator, and member of the clergy. Miguel Lopez de Legazbi, a 57-year-old government official described as Urdaneta's relative and friend, would be named commander. The other thing that needed to be decided was where would the expedition go. Urdaneta said that the Philippines were a poor choice. There were few spices, and the natives were often hostile. He wanted to go to New Guinea, which had been sighted by Spanish ships on two previous occasions. New Guinea was southeast of the Philippines. So which location was selected? Well, we will find that out in a minute. Now, approval of the expedition did not mean that they would depart anytime soon, and that's because the ships would have to be built. That, along with other issues, would delay the departure for five years. The fleet would finally set sail in November of 1564. There were either four or five ships and about 400 to 500 men. We get some discrepancies there. Urdaneta would bring with him five other Augustinian missionaries. Now, Urdaneta would be led to believe that the expedition was going to go to New Guinea. However, when the fleet's orders were opened after several days at sea, the destination was the Philippines. This had been done to prevent Urdaneta from backing out of the expedition before departing. While not thrilled about this, Urdaneta and his fellow priests would accept their fates and settle in for a long ocean voyage. As a side note, if the fleet had gone to New Guinea, there's a good possibility that the Spanish would have eventually discovered and settled Australia, which was only about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, to the south of New Guinea. But the decision was the Philippines, so off the fleet went. The trip across the Pacific would take 93 days. However, there was one mishap when one of the ships, the San Lucas, commanded by Alonso de Ariano, was separated from the fleet not long after heading across the ocean. Legazpi and his officers suspected that the separation was not an accident and that they had deserted. The ship will play an interesting role a bit later in our story, so we don't want to forget about it. Otherwise, back to Urdaneta and Legazpi and the Spanish fleet. The ships would reach Samar in the Philippines on February 13, 1565. 
They would then go to Cebu, where Magellan had gotten embroiled in local politics and lost his life some 40-plus years earlier. On Cebu, the expedition found a statue of Santo Nino, the child Jesus, given by Magellan to the local leader, Raja Hamaban. Urdaneta said that this was a good sign and recommended a settlement be built there. The statue, by the way, still exists. It is called Santo Nino de Cebu and is the oldest Christian artifact in the Philippines and widely venerated by the island's Catholic population. Anyhow, the settlement would be established, including a church, with Urdaneta and his fellow priests immediately beginning their missionary work amongst the locals. Urdaneta, by the way, showed a just and even hand with the native people. He had seen how conflicts had started due to arrogance and ignorance. This attitude would extend to Lake Gosby and the rest of the fleet. They knew that without the cooperation of the local natives, it was much more difficult to succeed. Urdaneta wanted to remain in the Philippines, but Lake Gosby needed him for something more important, and that was a way back to Spain. Remember, no one knew how to get back across the Pacific. Without that information, it was kind of pointless to come across the ocean like they had done. Lake Gosby figured that no one was more qualified to find that route than Urdaneta. He understood the winds of the Pacific, had sailed it twice, and talked to many others about their experiences. If anyone could do it, it was our explorer-priest. Thus, on June 1st, 1565, Urdaneta would depart on the San Pedro, tasking with finding a route back to the New World. The commander of the ship was Felipe de Salcido, Legazbi's 16-year-old grandson. However, the teenager was only the nominal commander. Everyone knew that it was Urdaneta who was running the show. Now, Urdaneta was a smart man. He had studied the winds and currents of not just the Pacific, but of the Atlantic. The theory was that the winds and currents moved in a circular pattern around the ocean, and he just needed to find one of those paths. And he was right. He would lead his ship northeast, essentially 2,000 miles or so, or 3,400 kilometers, to the east of Japan, between 36 and 38 degrees north latitude. Here he found the easterly trade winds and favorable currents. This is called the North Pacific Gyre. The voyage across the Pacific would not be an easy one. There was still a lot of bad weather, although by leaving in June, they had been lucky and avoided the worst of the typhoon season. As malnutrition and scurvy began to claim lives, Urdaneta would officially take command of the ship. San Pedro would reach the California coast on September 26th, a voyage of almost four months. They would then head south and arrive in Acapulco on October 8, 1565. Fourteen of the 46 crewmen were dead, and only a handful of the crew had the strength to help cast the ship's anchors on arrival. San Pedro had traveled roughly 12,000 miles or 20,000 kilometers. It was the longest recorded continuous ocean voyage ever at that time. But for the Spanish, they now had a route back across the Pacific, and Erdaneta had made accurate charts and maps and kept good logs and records. The route from the Far East to North America was set. Now, we do have one interesting side note to cover, and that is Alonso de Ariano and the San Lucas, which had been separated from the rest of the fleet shortly after departing New Spain. While the ship would actually make it across the Pacific, discovering some islands in the Marshalls and Carolinas, the most notable being Truk. After wandering around the Philippines for a few months, San Lucas would then sail back across the Pacific and reach New Spain in August, two months before Urdaneta. This would make for an awkward situation when Urdaneta arrived in Acapulco. Ariano said that he had accidentally been separated from the fleet. Others claimed he had deserted. In the end, Ariano was arrested. However, an inquiry would prove inconclusive. Many, in fact, would blame the situation on the San Lucas's pilot, Lope Martin. No matter, Ariano had been the first person to ever cross the Pacific from the Far East to the Americas, and he had done it in a small ship, only 40 tons and a crew of 20, which is pretty amazing. Now, as for his route, that's a little confusing. I've read that Ariano used the same path as Urdaneta, but I've also read that he took a different route. 
However, it would not really matter, as the maps and charts and logs of his voyage were not as clear and detailed as Erdineta's, and thus it would be Erdineta's records that would be used to plot a route back to the Americas going forward. And with that, André de Erdineta was back in New Spain. It is mostly through his efforts that his ship had made it. And while the return of San Lucas and Ariano had, no doubt, dimmed the accomplishment of Erdineta, it would be our Augustinian priest who would be remembered for establishing the route across the Pacific. With that, I will do a quick wrap-up of Erdineta's life, and then talk about the establishment of the Manila to Acapulco Galleon trade route. Erdineta would sail from Mexico to Europe to report back to the Spanish crown on the expedition's findings. There he would write accounts of his journeys before returning to the New World. He had hoped to return to the Philippines, but health issues would prevent that. He would die a few years later in 1568 in Mexico City at the age of 59. Erdineta's legacy is a lasting one, especially in the Philippines. He built the first churches there, and the city of Erdineta is named after him. It is there that you will find a great monument to the man. And there's other ways that he's been remembered, including a gunboat in the Spanish Navy being named after him in the late 1800s. But the thing most associated with him is the route he mapped across the Pacific. Since its discovery, it has simply been called Erdineta's Route. And that route would be used for 250 years by Spanish merchants. Now, Erdineta's death does not mean the end of our story. And that's because his route would allow for the establishment of the famed Manila Galleons, which I will talk about now. To start, I'll go back to Miguel Lopez de Legazpi and his expedition to the Philippines. Well, Legazpi and his men would spend many more years colonizing, fighting, and subjugating the islanders. This would culminate with the capture of Manila in 1571 and the establishment of a Spanish settlement. Legazpi would die in 1572 from a stroke at the age of 69 or 70. His legacy was securing the Philippines for the Spanish Empire, and this will build on our story. So with the Spanish entrenching themselves in the Philippines and passage across the Pacific in hand, the next thing to do was make this potential trade route a viable thing, and that would not take long. The way things worked were merchants from all over Asia, including China, Indonesia, India, and Japan, would bring their goods to the Philippines. Yes, there were spices, but there was so much more. There was porcelain, ivory, silk, gold, jewels, rugs, cotton, and much more. In exchange, the Spanish would trade a variety of goods, but the big trade ship would be silver. Silver was highly valued in Asia, especially in China, where it was used as a medium of exchange. The Spanish silver would come from mines in Mexico, and most famously, the Potosi mines in South America. So what would happen is the Spanish would, once or twice a year, send a ship, a galleon, filled with silver to Manila. Another galleon, loaded with valuable trade goods, would then go east, Manila to Acapulco, following Erdineta's route across the Pacific. Some of these Asian trade goods would be sold in New Spain, but the majority of them would be hauled overland to be loaded on other ships in the Caribbean and brought back to Europe. This would become an immensely valuable trade route for the Spanish Empire. By the way, to demonstrate the scope of this trade, in 1579, English privateer Francis Drake would seize one of these galleons as it was leaving Mexico and heading towards Manila. In addition to 80 pounds of gold, or 36 kilograms, there would be 26 tons, or 24,000 kilograms, of silver. In addition, Drake would get hold of charts detailing how he could cross the Pacific and thus allow him to eventually circumnavigate the world. I should stress that this was the early stages of the galleon trade, and it would only get bigger and more lucrative. The Manila-Acapulco galleons would operate for about 250 years. After the British and other powers began to explore the Pacific, the galleons would bring along more support vessels for protection. These galleons could be huge, 170 feet or 52 meters long, 2,000 tons and capable of carrying up to 500 passengers. 
Most of these ships would be built in the Philippines due to access to quality hardwood trees. The galleon fleet would eventually be ended by Spain in 1740, as a big collection of ships was a target for the British Navy. Instead, solo vessels would continue the trade, going from Acapulco to Manila and back until 1815. At this point, official trade ceased as more efficient routes were established. Now, trade would continue between Mexico and the Philippines for decades, but with the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, it would cut travel to Europe dramatically, making the Pacific routes obsolete. All of this had happened because the trade routes had been discovered and mapped by Urdaneta back in 1565. The Manila-Acapulco galleons would have a deep, lasting impact on the Philippines and Mexico. Manila would emerge as one of the great cities in the Far East, and the islands would become a Spanish colony until 1898. The work started by Urdaneta and his fellow priests would be long-lasting, as today more than 80% of the nation's 100-plus million people are Catholic. The link between Acapulco and Manila is so deep that there is now an effort to make the trade route a World Heritage Site. To this end, the Manila-Acapulco Galleon Museum in Manila was opened in 2017, and Mexico opened its Manila Galleon Gallery at the Archaeological Museum in Puerto Vallarta in 2018. Whether the route becomes a World Heritage Site remains to be seen. So that is it, the story of Andre de Urdaneta and the Manila Galleons. I hope you've enjoyed our tale. Please take care, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.